So this is week 19 in perhaps the longest series of messages that I will ever preach because we're going through the book of Matthew in a rather thorough fashion. If you've been with us for a while, you know that ordinarily when I go through a book of the Bible, I try to race through it and give you the biggest possible picture so that when you're studying it later, you can get the details. But on Sundays, I like to try to give you the big picture. When it comes to Matthew, though, what we've decided to do, I've decided to do, is to go slow because so much of the book of Matthew is contrary to our culture that we have to just sit with it for a while in order for it to begin to change us. And the biggest thing is just the identity of Jesus himself. You see, Matthew is the book that tells us Jesus is the best king ever. The first chapter of Matthew is trying to tell us that Jesus is three times better than the greatest king of all, King David. Jesus is three times better than David, and Matthew tries to make that point by using some you know, numbers and genealogies and things like that, because Matthew is writing to super Jewish people. He's writing to people who know the Old Testament, and they know all the sort of secrets and details and all that stuff, and so Matthew's trying to convince them that Jesus is the super king. But the problem is that when you and I think of a king, we tend to think of a bully who's on our side. We love the king who can accomplish anything he wants to do, so long as what he wants to do is the same thing we want the king to do. We love the king who is so strong and so powerful that he or she, I guess the queen, would be able to eliminate all enemies as long as they're also our enemies. We like the bully who's on our side. And far too often when we think of Jesus being a king, we have to admit this. A lot of Christians tend to think that they love Jesus because they're certain Jesus is on their side. After all, he died for us, which means he loves us, which means he's on our side. And if Jesus is on our side, then he is going to fight our battles. But the weird thing about the book of Matthew is that consistently Jesus disappoints the people around him consistently Jesus does not fight the battles the people around him want him to fight. In fact, Jesus always does the opposite. Jesus is the one who welcomes the enemies to come closer. And Jesus is the one who cheers for the losers. And so everything about Jesus is backwards and upside down to the kind of king we think we want. And that's one of the reasons why we've been taking a little bit more time on this series. The last time I addressed you was two weeks ago, and we talked about a story in the book of Matthew that is called the Transfiguration. This is the moment where Jesus goes up onto a mountain, and all of his glory is revealed to Peter, James, and John, his closest disciples. Jesus is shining like the sun. They can't even look at him. And then Moses and Elijah show up, and Jesus has a little conversation with Moses and Elijah. And we talked about all that a couple weeks ago. But the important thing that we came out of that lesson with was the recognition that for Peter, James, and John, they're thinking, this is amazing. This is the kind of spiritual moment that we want to perpetuate longer. We want this to last And Jesus very clearly communicates to them that no, this whole mountaintop experience was just for the moment. It wasn't something that was supposed to continue. It was just for the moment. And in fact, it was a moment that was supposed to produce momentum for Jesus so that he could come down the mountain all the way to the cross. In other words, Jesus at his peak of glory on the earth is just getting ready for the peak of of his disgrace in death. 
That's what we covered a couple weeks ago, and, and the lesson that you should pick up from that is that Jesus, with all this immense power and glory, is always committed to his mission, and his mission is to sacrifice himself for others. Today is July 4th. July 4th is famously known in this part of the world as Independence Day. Happy Independence Day, everybody. And that's because in 1776, a number of dudes signed a document that we call the Declaration of Independence. Some of you know this document. Among Christians, the most famous line in the Declaration of Independence is the first line of the second paragraph, which says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created... Yeah, see, you guys, it's been a long time since you were in school, right? And, and so yet you still understand that all men are created equal, not the women, of course. You know, they get left out of the Declaration of Independence. And um, also, you should remember that in the first draft of the Declaration of Independence, uh, there were some comments that Thomas Jefferson put in there about slavery, but, you know, that eventually got edited out, thank goodness. And so now all men are created equal and they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the reason Christians know that line is because it used the word creator. And because it used the word creator, it proves to us that these guys must have been spiritually minded and the document is spiritually minded. And so a lot of Christians are like, that's awesome. But I'll tell you, the most Christian line in the Declaration of Independence is the last one. A lot of people don't remember this one, but the last line in the Declaration of Independence, the one immediately before John Hancock writes his giant name, the last line is the one that says, we entrust ourselves to the protection of divine providence, and we pledge to one another, we mutually pledge to one another our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. You see, at the end of the declaration, these guys recognize that they have said a whole lot of complaining things about the king. And now they realize that they have spoken against the authority figure in their world. And so now they have to say, so we're going to put our trust in the top authority figure of the world. We're going to put our trust in divine providence. They don't call him God. They just say divine providence because some of the people there didn't believe in God. Some of the people did believe in God. But they said, what we're going to do is we're going to trust that if our cause is just, then if there is also a divine being who defends the cause of the just, then the divine being will defend our cause. That's what they're saying. We're going to trust divine providence. But it's the last line that is actually the most Christian where they say, and we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. These are rich men who have decided that they are going to lay down their honor, lay down their fortunes, and lay down even possibly their lives as a sacrifice so that a whole bunch of other people could experience life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, of course, you know more of the story than that, and you know that these particular guys who signed the document, very few of them actually were the ones who were in the battles and in the war and actually dealing with the typhus and dysentery of Valley Forge and all that kind of stuff. And so they didn't lose all of their wealth and everything, but there's this idea, there's this sense that they are sacrificing themselves for a greater cause. They are sacrificing themselves for each other. Now, I have some friends who did it better than that. 
When I was in Chicago, there was a family that we knew, John and Esther. And John and Esther were the most generous people that I had ever met in my life, the most giving people that I had ever met in my life. John and Esther lived in a part of the city of Chicago, right down the street from where my wife and I were living. My wife and I were living in an apartment that was owned, an apartment building that was owned by the church. It had two apartments. In Chicago, it's called a two-flat. And so we were in the top floor of this two-flat apartment building. The church owned it, and so they let us stay there for free. That's how we afforded the place. But John and Esther were living in that same part of the city where a single-family house would cost you half a million dollars. Back in the early 2000s, a single family house would cost you half a million dollars. These were called bungalows and they were very small. And then uh, they, John and Esther, were living in an apartment roughly the same size as the one that my wife and I were living in. And they never told me how much they were paying, but my estimate of how much they were paying was around $1,500 for a small two-bedroom apartment in this part of Chicago. Now, what's also fascinating about that is that John was the only one employed in the family. He was working, Esther was not, and he was working as a janitor at Moody Bible Institute where he would ride his bike the 10 or so miles to get to Moody Bible Institute to be a janitor for them. And Christian organizations don't pay that well anyway. And then when it comes to Christian organizations paying janitors, quite frequently that's even even less. And so John was making next to nothing. They were raising three kids and Esther's mom was living with them too. Elderly, but she could still kind of get around, but had a little bit of social security income coming in and all that kind of stuff, but not very much. They were this family of five, excuse me, six, in this household, and I had no idea how they were making it. One day I visited them. All of their beds were just single mattresses on the floor. They had one desk in the living room and their refrigerator had a package of hot dogs, no buns, and I think there may have been a couple condiments in there and possibly some macaroni and cheese boxes. I don't remember, but that was effectively all they had. And I kid you not, I never saw a person within earshot of John and Esther who identified any need in their life And John and Esther didn't race to meet it. If someone in the neighborhood needed food, they would invite them over to the house and they'd just cut the hot dogs in half. And I was astonished at this immense generosity from this family. They were always giving everything away. They never had anything. So one day I asked them, I was like, John, Esther, what in the world? How come you guys keep giving everything away? And they said, well, When you don't have anything, everything that comes into your life is a gift. And if God can give it to you once, he can give it to you again. And so, what's to keep us holding on to it? We can give it away because God's going to give it again. And I was blown away. I was stunned at the level of generosity and sacrifice these people had. And it boiled down to this basic idea. If you view yourself as above someone else. It's hard to make your sacrifices for them. But if you view yourself as lowly as anyone else on the planet, then it's easy for you to share. John and Esther just made life decisions and commitments that kept them down in this particular place where I would have talked about it as abject poverty. And what they talked about it, the way they talked about it was just 
abundant generosity. I don't understand that kind of life. I, I, I still, to this day, it's not a, a life I aspire to, but it's a life I do respect. And Jesus did it even better than them. Today I want to show you three little stories in Matthew 17 and 18. Three little passages that on the surface don't look like they relate to each other very much at all. But as you look at them, they all are communicating this same basic concept. Go ahead and join me. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 17, verse 24 is where we start. It says this, after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Now I'm going to pause there because I need to give you some context about this temple tax. I mentioned it before, there was the tithe that God said every single harvest you bring the first 10% of all your income and bring that to God's work through the Levites or the tabernacle or the temple or whatever it was. But there was this other command in Exodus. In fact, I'm going to show it to you. In Exodus chapter 30, it says this. I'll put it up on the screen. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses, who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord, it says. Receive the atonement. Wait a minute. It had been calling it a tax. It had been calling it a, a census tax. But now, at verse 16, it flips. And it's now referring to it as atonement money. He says, receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord making atonement for your lives. See, this is what it was supposed to be. God said to Moses, if you ever count the people, usually you would count people to determine your military strength. So God says to Moses, if you ever count the people, then what you are doing is you're trying to identify the strength that you have on earth, the earthly power that you have. And since you have identified these people as earthly power, you now need to pay something back to God to recognize that God is the real power. That's kind of this whole overarching idea of what's going on here. And so every time you take a census, you're supposed to give a half shekel for each man, they only counted the adult fighting men, for each man who was counted in the census. And that money was called atonement money, and it was to be a memorial to always be used for the tabernacle or the temple. By the time of Jesus... They were no longer taking military censuses. And so instead of the military census, they just simply levied the half-shekel tax on all adult men who were Jews once a year. They said, okay, we're not going to actually count because we don't have an army, but this is still a memorial atonement offering that God put into his law, so we're going to keep it going even though we're not forming an army as a result of it. And so they kept it going. And so you need to know that this temple tax, the temple tax that they're referring to here, is the people of Israel obeying God to get atonement money from each of the men who lives in that country, that area, that world, okay? 
This is not human beings making up a new idea, making up a new tax, coming up with something new. I, I always used to think this was just the, the people of the temple wanting money. They were greedy. No, this is actually a command from God. So does Jesus. Does Jesus pay that tax? That's what they're asking Peter. Let's see what the answer is. In verse 25, yes, he does, Peter replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. I love it because that means Jesus probably understood what was going on outside the door, even though Peter hadn't really told him anything. Jesus is the first one to speak. Anyway, what do you think, Simon, he asked? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. Okay, something really interesting is happening here. Jesus says, if a king asks for a tax, do his own children pay the tax? And the answer is no. The children don't pay the tax. The tax is for the other people outside the family. So if the king asks for a tax, who pays the task? The tax, the children or the other? No, the other people pay the tax. So the children are exempt. In the context of the temple tax, is Jesus making fun of the leaders of the temple? Who's the person who's asking for the tax? It was God. God was the one who was asking for the tax. And if God, the ultimate king, levies a tax, should his son pay the tax? And the answer is, no, of course not. The son shouldn't pay the tax. Jesus is doing three things here that are absolutely amazing, and I'm going to show you in just a little bit of something fabulously amazing that is going on, but it begins with this idea. Jesus has just said to Peter that he is the Son of God exempt from this tax, which is an amazing thing because he is now... I mean, we've mentioned this a couple times before. Jesus has already spoken about his own divinity a number of other times in Matthew. We've recognized that, but he just keeps saying it over and over again. Jesus has such a special relationship with the Father who gave the Old Testament law that Jesus is exempt from the tax. He's exempt from the temple tax, but that means a second thing. Do you remember what that, that temple tax was called? It was originally the census tax, and then later on the money was called atonement money. This is now Jesus saying, hey, listen, some of us don't need atonement. Hey, listen, some of us don't need God's forgiveness. Some of us don't need to pay the atonement money for ourselves because we're already standing in holiness. Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of God. Jesus is saying, I'm the perfect Son of God. Jesus is saying, I don't need to follow any of these things because these are all laws God gave for his people, not his Son. Amazing. What would you do if you had such authority and such power? Take a look at what Jesus does with his authority and with his power says this, verse 27, but so that we may not cause offense. Go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. 
This is brilliant. When I was younger, this was one of those flannel graph stories on the board that the Sunday school teachers would show us about Jesus, who is supposed to pay a tax, but instead he does a miracle and the money is in the mouth of the fish. And it was always a cool story about Jesus doing a miracle where Peter goes and he gets a fish and there's money in the mouth of the fish. And then I always thought, well, I want to become a fisherman because if there's, if there's money in the mouth of the fish, then, you know, that would be a cool thing to experience. And so I, you know, I thought that was a neat thing. But, but the bigger picture is completely missed by that little Sunday school story. The reason Jesus doesn't have to pay the tax is not because the tax is invalid. It's because the tax was given by his heavenly father and it doesn't apply to the son. It's because the tax was given for atonement and it doesn't apply to the perfect one. And so Jesus doesn't need to pay this tax and yet he uses miraculous power to pay it anyway. Jesus leverages this immense amount of power that he has to pay the tax so that no one will be offended. This is so fascinating to me that Jesus would lower himself. Man, if you and I ever have power, if you and I ever have authority, we always leverage it for ourselves, don't we? I mean, just this coming week, on on July 11th, it is scheduled for Richard Branson to fly in a ship that he has been working on for the past 20 years in an airplane from Virgin Galactic, this company that he started about 20 years ago. It's his plan to fly in this rocket plane to the edge of space, about 200,000 kilometers up there or something like that, to the edge of space where he is going to be weightless for a few minutes and stuff and be technically in outer space in this ship that his company has made. Richard Branson is doing that. He's expressing immense power, so much money, so much wealth, so much guts and all of the investment to make all this stuff happen. He's doing all that. And why is he doing it? So that next week he can sell tickets for $250,000 per seat. So if you want to go to outer space, if you want to get up there and experience weightlessness for a little while, you can go up there. He's just going to be one of the first to do it to prove that it's okay for you to do it. He's not doing it for any noble purpose. He's just trying to raise more money from people who are going to spend that much money to go up there and be um, weightless for a little bit. Now, granted, if any of you do win the lottery and you do give that money to me, I will tithe on it, but then I might also buy one of those tickets. Um, anyway, the point is that when we have power and we leverage our power, we almost always leverage our power in some way for our own benefit. And Jesus is the divine Son of God. Jesus is all-powerful, and he uses his immense power to humble himself, to humble himself for the benefit of those beneath him. He doesn't need to pay the tax. He could stand up and say, I'm not supposed to pay the tax. I'm the divine son of God. I don't need atonement. I don't need to pay this tax. But he doesn't want to offend, which is weird because Jesus offends people all the time. But in this moment, he's like, no, I'm not going to offend the sensibilities of the people who see every adult Jewish male pay this tax. And so Jesus also pays it. But here's the other fascinating thing. There is no two drachma coin. 
The tax is two drachmas because the Old Testament tax was a half shekel. And by the time of Jesus, a half shekel in the sanctuary was worth two drachmas. And there is no two drachma coin. They never made one. There is, however, a four drachma coin. And so in order for this whole miracle thing to work, it's Jesus using his power to also cover Peter's tax too. This is the amazing thing. Jesus is using this immense power, immense miraculous power, not because he needs to, but because there are people beneath him that he is willing to humble himself for. That's the entire context of what we're looking at here. That's the entire context of what's happening here. But it's time for us to begin to think about ourselves. Because immediately after this happens, the disciples come up to Jesus and they ask him a question that is ludicrous in comparison to who Jesus just revealed himself to be. Take a look at it. Matthew 18, verse 1. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus has just demonstrated that he is exempt from the taxation. Obviously, he's the greatest. He has just demonstrated to them that he is pure, he is divine, he is the son of God, he is the greatest in the kingdom. Don't bother asking him who's the greatest in the kingdom. You're looking at him, you're asking that guy the question. But they ask it anyway because when Jesus is so incredible and powerful, they want to know, well, what about the rest of us? What's the hierarchy? Because, see, Jesus, you're the kind of person who wants to lower yourself, but I'm not that kind of person. I'm the kind of person who wants to elevate myself. I'm the kind of person who wants to find that next rung to climb. I'm the kind of person who wants to figure out what, it needs to hap- what needs to happen in my life for me to get a leg up on someone else. Jesus, humbling yourself for the sake of those beneath you, that's something you can do. But for me, I need to get a leg up because there's no telling. Uh, if I don't fight for my own rights, no one else is going to do it for me. Who then is the greatest? Verse 2. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In just a moment, I'm going to talk a little bit about what it means to be like a little child. But first, I want to identify the thing in this verse that is frightening and obvious. It's the word unless. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so... What does it mean to be a little child? I, I want to be a little child because, you know, I don't, I don't want to be exempt from the kingdom of heaven. I want to enter the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be a little child? Well, being a little child means to change from what they just were. What they just were are people who said, who's the greatest? What they just were were people who were thinking about, how do I get a leg up? What they just were were people who were thinking of, how can they be better than other people. That's what they were just thinking about. And Jesus says, unless you change and become like a little child. You see, when you get low enough on the children rung, you find human beings who don't care about prestige. 
You get human beings who don't care about whether or not they are perceived as more important than anyone else. At that level, they might still be concerned with who, might, who has the most you know, pepperoni on their pizza. They might still be concerned with who got the most jelly on their sandwich. They might still be concerned with inequities that are down there. Of course, that still happens. But there's this other attitude of the little child where a little child doesn't really think of themselves as elevated or lowly. They just are what they are. And Jesus's point is to that. Because, see, the disciples look at the little child as the little child is lowly. And so Jesus knows that in the disciples' mind, the word for children is lowly. So he says, unless you change and become like a little child, Jesus is saying, unless you change and become a person who is lowly, unless you change and become like a lowly person, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's be blunt. Prideful people don't go to heaven. These are Jesus' words. Prideful people, people who are trying to figure out how they rank compared to other people, people who are asking the question, how can I be greater in the kingdom of heaven? Those people, prideful people, they don't even get in. But if prideful people don't get in, who does? Look at verse 4. Therefore, Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humble people are the greatest. Prideful people don't get in. Humble people are the greatest. Now here's a question. What's the difference between a humble person and a prideful person? Can you have a person who's neither? They're neither humble nor proud. Jesus doesn't seem to indicate that. And this is the fascinating thing about it. Jesus doesn't say humble people sneak in. Jesus doesn't say humble people, there's a whole hierarchy of humble people. There's some better humble people and some lower humble people. And there's some humble people who are greater than other humble people. There's some humble people who are at the lowest of the heap. You know, When you get into heaven, there's going to be some humble people down there at the bottom. And there's going to be some humble people who are right up there at the top. Yeah, that's good. No, this is the fascinating thing. Jesus says the humble people are the greatest, which means, get this, there is only one category of human in heaven. Greatest. There is no less great in the kingdom of heaven. There's not a hierarchy of people in the kingdom of heaven. You don't get into heaven and some of you made it, oh, and you're not doing, oh, you just barely made it in. We'll put you in a small house. And some of you made it in and you got, oh man, you had all kinds of rewards and you were so awesome in this life, so we're going to give you a big mansion. That's not the way it works. Jesus says prideful people don't get in at all. Humble people, you're the greatest. There's only one category. Everyone who makes it into heaven is considered greatest. That's an amazing thing, don't you think? But prideful people don't get in at all. Prideful people are uncomfortable with everybody being great. Prideful people need hierarchy. Prideful people need ranking systems. Humble people, everyone around them, is, they're all great. This is an amazing thing of what Jesus is doing here. He even goes farther. Take a look at what he says here in verse 5. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. 
Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. I I love this passage because this is the passage that I need to use to plug our Kidopolis program to all of you. Okay, Jesus says, whoever welcomes a little child welcomes me. So if you want to be able to welcome Jesus into your life in some fashion, you need to sign up today for our Kidopolis program to help out with our kids because our kids back there are some of the lowly ones that we're supposed to take care of. Now, I'm doing that partially um, facetiously, but partially seriously too. I really authentically do believe that how a church treats its young kids is indicative of so much more. Because Jesus says it this way, how you treat the lowly reveals who you are. How you treat the lowly reveals who you are. If you're a prideful person, everyone is beneath you. If you're a humble person, no one is beneath you. And so how you treat the other person reveals who you are. Pragmatically, I could encourage you to sign up for Kidopolis. Yes, that is a definitely important thing. But it's not just that. Jesus isn't talking about biological children. He's talking about anyone we perceive as lowly. If you see a person that you perceive as somehow beneath you and you do anything to violate them, you do anything that causes them to stumble, you do anything that leads them astray, you are the kind of person who should have a large rock tied around your neck and thrown into the ocean. Jesus is the one who comes up with that metaphor. I want you to drown to death with a large millstone tied around your neck. Says Jesus, not me. Says Jesus about anyone who treats a lowly person poorly. How you treat the lowly reveals who you are. What's interesting is Jesus then gives us some extra reasons. Take a look at this, verse 8. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. You've heard this one before. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Uh, Here's the next one, verse 9. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. People take this verse out of context and they're like, wow, this is really serious. Jesus is talking about maiming people bodily. And I'll say the same thing to you guys today that I say about this passage whenever it comes up. If your right eye can prevent you from sinning, if getting rid of your right eye will also get rid of your sin, then do it. For crying out loud, do it. If I could get rid of the sin in my life by getting rid of this hand, then for crying out loud, I should do it. There's just a couple problems. If I get rid of my right hand, I happen to still have a left one. And if I get rid of my right eye, I still happen to have a left one. And so here's the deal. I can't get rid of sin that easily. 
I can't get rid of sin by just plucking out one eye. I can't get rid of sin by plucking out two eyes because if I lose both my eyes, I'll still have my hearing. And if I lose my hearing, I'll still have my ability to touch things and my my experiences and my sensations. And if I lose all my sensations, I'll still have my ability to think because here's the problem. No matter what you strip away from my life, I still have me. There's still my heart. There's still my thoughts. And the only thing that could possibly get sin far enough away from my life is for me to literally cut out my own self. Die to myself. Maybe take up a cross. Maybe every day. And follow Jesus. He is speaking here not about you needing to maim yourself in order to make it to heaven. He is speaking here about the seriousness of any time one thing causes something else to stumble. He's talking about the seriousness of any time one thing causes something else to stumble because it is terrible when a person up here causes a person down here to stumble. Take a look at verse 10. He says, See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And people are like, okay, so what does that mean? That means that that there must be a guardian angel for each child. Um, That there's an angel in heaven who stands before the Father as a representative for each child, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Because if my child had a guardian angel, I don't want my, guardian, my child's guardian angel to be away from my child. I want my child's guardian angel to be around my child. You know what I mean? But this is an, this is an angel somehow that is before the face of God. So is Jesus talking about guardian angels? No, I don't think so. As a matter of fact, there are other places in the New Testament where angel becomes a word that is used to refer to the spirit inside a human being after death. The spirit inside a human being after death comes out of that person, and then if you were to encounter that spirit somehow, the better word for that would be angel than ghost or something along those lines. And so this could possibly be referring to the fact that children, when they pass away, they are welcomed into the kingdom of heaven and their spirits go before the heavenly father. That might be what he's saying here, but there's an even better way of understanding it, and it comes from Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 5. Let me show you things that we've covered a long time ago that I'm certain you still remember. Matthew chapter 5 verses 3 and 6 say this, blessed are the, 3 and 8, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Lowly people find God. Prideful people don't. Lowly people find God. Prideful people don't. So let's finish it up. Because there's this little bit at the end here, verse 12. What do you think, he says? Oh, I should give you the blank to fill in. God loves the lowly. That's what that one is. God loves the lowly. Verse 12. 
What do you think, Jesus says, if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. Of course, this passage shows up in Luke as well in a different context. Jesus must have told this parable a number of times because it's a really powerful image. The good shepherd is going to leave the 99 behind in their secure place to go after the wandering one. But in Matthew, we get a different application of it because in Matthew, when Jesus tells this story, he finishes it differently, verse 14. He says, in the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. God loves the lowly. In this context, the wandering one is someone that the rest of us might disregard, but God loves them. In this context, the sheep is someone that most of us would disregard, but God loves them. See, here's the thing. God loves the lowly. And you put all this together and you get this idea that prideful people don't enter heaven, but humble people do, and they're the greatest in it. And how you treat the lowly reveals who you are because God loves the lowly. It all boils down to whether or not you and I want to be the people who represent God in this world. And so I put it this way. Pride and power get you nowhere. But humility can take you to heaven because God loves the lowly. I was hesitant to phrase it that way. Because standard in Christian churches is to say, in order to get to heaven, you have to accept Jesus into your heart. In order to get to heaven, you have to um, ask Jesus to be your Savior and Lord. In order to get to heaven, you have to pray the sinner's prayer. What's fascinating is that Jesus doesn't say that here. Jesus says all the things around it. So I'm going to tie it together for you. The first act of humility that any human being ever can do is the recognition that I am not God, that God is God, and I am accountable to Him. The second act of humility that anyone can do is the recognition that God and God alone can determine the terms of my relationship with Him. The third act of humility that anyone can do is to say that God in His grace has sent His Son into this world for my salvation. And so I'll receive it and I'll respond to it. But anyone who does those three acts of humility and does not also do the acts of humility in this world around them has proven that the first three were fake. Because God loves the lowly. I have to start by admitting that I am lowly. And once I've admitted that I am lowly and I receive from God His gift of grace and the gift of salvation He offers through Jesus, once I've done that, once I've been in that lowly place, it is completely outside of Christian character to then take a prideful position. Because God has saved me, I'm now more important than you. That is so antithetical to Christianity. Because God has saved me, I'm now important than the unsaved people in the world. That is so antithetical to Christianity. The bottom line is this. God loves the lowly. Be glad because you are lowly. Receive his love. 
In just a moment, when we sing our final song, we're going to have communion up here. And communion is God's symbolic gift to you of the salvation that is available to you through Jesus. Because you are lowly and I am lowly and he sent his son, the divine son of God, perfect and holy with all kinds of power to come to this world, not for his own benefit, not for his own aims, not for his own power, not to prove his own worth, but to make sure you wouldn't stumble and to use his power to cover your debt and to reach into your life and to say, I will be for you what you need so that you and I can then be like him to the world around us. Three thoughts just as we close out here. I want to ask you today to humble yourself before God and receive Jesus. I want to ask you today to humble yourself before this meal, this symbolic meal of communion, and receive into yourself once again the gift of forgiveness and grace made available to you through Jesus' death and his resurrection. And finally, I want to ask you to humble yourself out in the world and display Jesus to the people around you, whether they look to you like lowly or great. Be the lowly. And love the world like Jesus would. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.